0: Well, good morning, friends. My house has been full of sixth grade girls all weekend. So if I start to droop, then maybe just a little bit. And then if I just lay my head down on the table, just bring me a blanket and go on. It'll be fine. All right, really, it has been so incredible to see all of our students this weekend and all that they have experienced working on the house together, pouring over God's word together, building really strong friendships with their group, And you know what I was reminded of is that what our students have experienced is really a microcosm of what we as a church experience together, being part of this gathered body of believers doing life together. We're wrapping up a mini series today on what the church is called to be. Last fall, we did a sermon series called This Is Me, where we looked at how our identity is formed and shaped by Scripture. And then now we're looking at the we side of the equation as we see what the Bible has to say about us collectively as a church. So last week we looked at our mission statement and what does it mean for us to passionately follow Jesus. And today we're going to see how important it is that we do that together. All right, so around the world, some cultures tend to be more collectivistic. That means they look at things through the identity of the group and other cultures tend to be more individualistic. Uh, their identity is found primarily in the individual. Let me explain a little bit. I was at a conference workshop one time, and Dr. John Park showed four pictures, and you're going to see them on the screen here as well, and he asked us to group them, and people had different answers. He explained that people who grew up in a Western culture tend to think in categories, and so they would say, well, the horse and the cow are animals, the hay and the grass are plants, And so they grouped them together in those categories. But then he pointed out that the people who grew up in an Asian culture more often think in terms of relationships. So for them, it made more sense to think of, well, cows eat grass and horses eat hay. And so that's how they would group them together. Now, although our cultural landscape is changing, the U.S. definitely leans more towards the individualistic side. And there are certainly some really good things about that as it relates to our faith, right? This outlook, it helps us to recognize our own individual sin and our personal responsibility for it. It helps us to see our personal need for grace, and it helps us to make that individual response to the gospel. But... uh, This individualistic mindset can also have some downsides to it as well, right? We can view ourselves primarily as individual followers of Jesus who just happen to be geographically near each other. But the Bible paints this drastically different picture. As we discussed in our One Another series last year, we're connected like roots underground from the same organism. Scripture reminds us that we are one body. We're united in Christ we don't follow Jesus on our own. We follow Jesus together. And this is what the Apostle Paul is explaining to the church in Colossae. He's writing them a letter from prison. And he, in the middle of chapter 3 that we're coming to today, he paints a picture of what the church should look like. So let's open our Bibles together. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Listen as I read verses 15 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, a few years ago, Google published this database of five million books that had been published between 1500 and 2008. So you can type a word into their search engine now and discover how often words have been used over the centuries. Now based on this data, the New York Times columnist David Brooks put together uh, what he calls the story of the last half century. And the first part of this story is the rise of individualism. In the past 50 years, individualistic words and phrases have been drastically on the rise and they've drastically overshadowed communal words and phrases. So, for instance, you see a lot more of words like self, personalized, I come first, I can do it myself. You see a lot less words like community, share, band together, and common good. And it's not just this idea of togetherness that has suffered, but it's the benefits that we receive from it as well. We're going to show you a chart on the screen. Some of the hardest hit words have been ones associated with things like courage and gratitude. Uh, There's been a significant drop in other terms of moral virtue, like modesty, discipline, humility, patience, faith, wisdom, and even talk about evil. Now, I find all this a little bit alarming, don't you guys? So what does all of this tell us? Well, as much as we may differ from one another or make life messy for one another or even occasionally wound one another, statistics bear out what the Apostle Paul was trying to tell one another. The truth is that we need each other. The truth is that we are better off together than we are on our own. The truth is we can't passionately follow God the way that he has designed it unless we do it together. We don't have to have it all together, but we want together to be our defining word. So today we're going to look at the three characteristics of the together church. Now if you're taking notes, you'll notice that the key to all of these three characteristics is the same. It's Christ. This comes as no surprise to you, I'm sure. At the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, Paul told the Colossians what would happen when they give their lives to follow Jesus. He said, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, on our own, there's no way that together would be our defining word. Just look at the culture around us. It's increasingly fractured and polarized. But when we all share this common purpose of passionately following Jesus together, then that common pursuit brings us closer together. So let's dive into these three characteristics. The first thing that we're going to see is that we are ruled by the peace of Christ. Ruled by the peace of Christ. Look at with me at the first part of verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now when the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about more than just an absence of conflict. Sometimes we might picture peace as being similar to uh, the way we might approach Thanksgiving dinner with the extended family. Well, we can't bring up politics or current events or that weird cousin that everyone's a little bit embarrassed about. Not my family, right? Maybe yours? Um, we just avoid bringing up any controversial subjects that might spark any kind of disagreement with one another. Well, in church, while it would certainly be foolish to provoke fights with one another unnecessarily, Real peace is not avoiding the hard subjects or staying away from any place where we might have disagreement. On the contrary, church ought to be the safest place that we can sort out tricky subjects. We can listen to different perspectives from people that we know and love and trust. So when scripture talks about peace, it's talking about a sense of well-being and wholeness, Real peace is an outgrowth of love, which Paul talks about right in the verse before this, in verse 14. Dr. Martin Luther King, when he was speaking to a gathering of the Church of Christ in Chicago in 1965, he said this Love is treating fellow men as persons, understanding them with all their good and bad qualities, and treating them as potential saints. Real love, real peace means wanting the best for one another despite our differences. And in fact, differences and even sometimes disagreements are to be expected. That's why Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule. That word rule is like an umpire who calls a New York, I mean a New York Rangers, a Texas Rangers baseball game. But for the early church, it wasn't the Texas Rangers, it was the Greek games that they were thinking of. The umpire stood in the middle of the wrestling match and he made sure that each one of the contestants was following the rules. Or he stood in the middle of the boxing ring and called which ones were foul blows. Or he would say which runner in the race came out on top. And nobody would argue with the umpire. His was an unquestioned authority and his verdict always ruled the day. Now the peace of Christ does the same things in our hearts. We, as a body of believers, we decide all things by the peace of Christ. What brings wholeness and well-being according to Christ. It helps us to submit to Christ and to one another. It helps us to resist evil and to turn the other cheek. It helps us to put aside our grievance and to look at the over the speck in our brother's eye and to look at the plank in our own eye instead. It causes us to lay aside our pettiness, our preferences, our pet peeves, and to truly see one another as Christ does. Now, I think Paul lists the peace of Christ as the first characteristic in these uh, verses because it's the most visible to the community around us. When our neighbors want to know what the church is like, do they see people who are consumed with getting their own way, with being right, with wielding the most influence and power? Or do they see people who are marked by humility and selflessness and graciousness? This is the calling that Christ has given us to be a community that is markedly different from the world around us. Earlier in Colossians, as well as in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places in Scripture, Paul describes um, the church as a body of Christ where he himself is the head that holds all things together and then all of the members are working in sync with one another. They're part of God's mission of reconciling all things to himself as Colossians 1.20 says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We follow the ultimate peacemaker. So with Christ as our head and as our umpire, we can function together as a whole, living in the peace to which Christ calls us. Now, as we dive into the second characteristic of the together church, this one may not be as obvious to the outside world, But I would argue that without it, none of the other characteristics would be possible. The second characteristic of this together church is inhabited by the word of Christ. Take a look with me at verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now let's break that down together. It's a long verse. The main thing for us to consider is what does it mean for the message of Christ, the word of Christ, to dwell among you richly? Well, as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon pointed out, in order for it to dwell among you richly, first it's got to enter into us, right? So we will only have the word of Christ in us if we spend time reading God's word, studying God's word, meditating on God's word, memorizing God's word. And this is different than the way some of us were taught in school. Maybe we taught um, to learn things simply by rote memory. Or we used some kind of mnemonic device to help us remember things, a list of facts. Or I remember repeating a simple poem over and over again until I got the right order of the words stuck in my head. And it usually lasted at least as long as the test, maybe about two weeks, and then it was gone. A week or two later, you've forgotten everything you were supposed to have learned. So Paul says... That's not how this works. The word of Christ should enter into us in such a way that it makes a home there. It spills into every corner, filling up every space. And it's more than just a passing breeze that blows in on a Sunday morning and then out uh, as you leave. But it takes up residence there. It's not a sparse or a meager residence. It's a rich and a luxurious residence within us. The Word of God enriches every aspect of our lives. It becomes this integral part of who we are. It forms us and it shapes us into the character of Christ. A woman in my grow group last semester gave a beautiful testimony of the first time that she had read the Bible from cover to cover, and it was actually when she was a student. And she said it was like the pieces of her faith puzzle began to fall into place. She got a more complete picture of who God is and of who she is in relation to God, It's a beautiful thing when the word of Christ begins to dwell in us richly. Now, one benefit of God's word dwelling in us is that we grow in wisdom. In the Greek, that's actually the phrase that comes next in this verse. The Greek says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Paul had said in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, as you go about your day, wouldn't you want to tap into the wisdom of Christ? Irena and I have been watching Gilmore Girls. Anybody else seen that show? I know it's an old one. It's so fun. Um, One of the characters is this high-strung college student named uh, Paris. And at one point, she gets this life coach named Terrence, who helps her with every aspect of her life. And in one scene, Paris is sitting on the couch with her boyfriend. They're having a really hard conversation. And the telephone is sandwiched right between them, and Terrence is on the other end of the line, helping Paris to think through what she's going to say and to make decisions about their relationship. Now, it's fairly ridiculous on one level, right? But think about how amazing it would be to have Jesus on the other end of the line. Now, friends, I'm sure you've figured this out, but we do. We do, right? We have Jesus, we can, he can shadow us throughout our day. We consult him on hard decisions that we have to make. We, he helps us to make wise choices and shows us how to thrive. As the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we discover these vast treasures of wisdom and knowledge that Christ makes available to us. Christ's word gives us wisdom for living, wisdom for relationships, wisdom to handle the everyday challenges that come our way, big and small. Now, a lot of times we think about God's word entering into us as a solitary affair. And in fact, every, all the things I mentioned about God's word entering into us earlier were things that we certainly could do on our own. But all of Paul's language in this chapter here, all of the yous are a second person plural. Now, if you're texting, that's y'all. Or if you're not, it's all of you, the church. So how does Paul say that we're supposed to go about this together? As a church, having the word of Christ dwell in us richly together as a church community. Well, he gives three main ways, and we'll hit each one. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. Now, teaching we might expect, right? In our weekly worship services, every Sunday, we dive into the word of God together, and we interpret it, we apply it to our lives. And starting next week, as John mentioned, we'll be gathering weekly together in our grow groups, where we'll take an even deeper dive into the same scripture and others like it. And our goal is not just to get information from the Bible, but to see real-life transformation. Now, the second way that the Word of Christ dwells in us richly as a church community is maybe a little bit more surprising. Paul says that we do this by admonishing one another. Now, maybe this sounds like rejection or judgmentalism. After all, we know from Scripture how important it is that we address our own behavior first before we seek to correct someone else. But while admonishing does have the sense of teaching correctively, it's really better characterized as encouragement. As we do life together, we see the ways that sin has entangled our brothers and sisters and caused them harm. And so out of an abundance of love for one another, we take a risk and we call our brother and sister back into God's ways, back into what's truly best for them. Maybe that sounds harsh, but Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, says it this way. We'll put this quote on the screen. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Now, maybe you think, okay, that's fine, but that's not me. I'm not doing that. That's the role of a pastor, (laughs) But reminder, Paul is talking to the church, to the members of the congregation, and telling them that this is their job as the body of Christ. It takes every one of us. Now, I know it's easier to avoid those hard conversations, and we don't want to offend, but Proverbs 27 insists, better is open rebuke than hidden love. We do our brothers and sisters more harm than good if we don't call them back from sin into the good life that God has for them. The proverb goes on to say, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Do you have a friend like that? Students, when I was your age, I had three friends like that. We all got matching rings. They had a heart with a little cross in the middle of it. And we were so honest with one another. We would prod one another along in our faith. We would call out one another when we needed it, and we may not have liked it right then. But I promise you that saved us from so much damage in our growing up years. And to the rest of you, we have not outgrown that. We still need it. Our grow groups are designed to be that kind of community for one another. If you don't have a group, please come see us at the table in the lobby right after worship, and we will help you find a group. If you're already in a group, talk with your group. We want our groups to be more like this. Ask God and your group members to help increase your transparency with one another, as you do life together, you can talk about these words of Colossians 3.16 and about this Bonhoeffer quote and cast a vision for what does it look like for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly as you not only teach, but you also admonish one another with loving kindness. Now, the third way that Paul says the word of Christ dwells in us richly is through singing. Singing. Now, when Paul lists out psalms, hymns, and spirit-filled psalms, he's not casting a vote on which kind of song we should be doing in in the worship service. Instead, he's saying that our worship should be based on and bathed in Scripture. There's nothing that can help us commit Scripture to heart and Scriptural truths to heart better than singing. In fact, studies have shown that Alzheimer's or dementia patients, even after their uh, memories have abandoned them that they can recall hymns that they have learned in childhood. The The musician and theologian Jeremy Bigby says, worship is not something we repeat or something that we listen to, but it's something that we make. Worship's not sitting back and listening to the beautiful voices of our worship team as they are here on the platform. It's each and every one of us singing with our whole heart, making a joyful noise as scripture says. It's the work of the people as we lift our voices together in praise. Now, one of my most embarrassing moments happened sometime, I think, within the last year in a worship service. I was singing my heart out, and all of a sudden, my phone started buzzing with text messages. People were letting me know that there was this problem on the live stream. And you couldn't hear it in the worship service, so I didn't have a clue. But for everyone worshiping at home, my mic was still on. (laughs) Drowning out the beautiful voices of the worship team, you could hear my joyful noise above everyone else. So if you're worried about other people hearing you, just remember it can't be that bad you're not wearing a microphone. So sing out and let the word of Christ inhabit your heart as you worship. Now we've come to the third and the final characteristic of the together church. If the peace of Christ is the most visible if the word of Christ is the most foundational. We might say that this third one is the most far-reaching because it encompasses every aspect of our lives. Paul says that we are saturated by the identity of Christ. One chapter earlier in Colossians 2.6, Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Those of you who are in a GROW group, a few years ago may have memorized that verse as part of our Deeply Rooted series together. Paul asks us to remember that moment when we first gave our lives to Jesus as Lord. Remember how we died to our old ways of life and God raised us into newness of life, walk in new life in Christ. Well, Paul says that this identity is what marks us for the rest of our lives. It's not a one-time transaction that uh, ensures an eternal future, It's a whole new way of living. It changes our lives from top to bottom. Look with me at verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Think through the different moments of your day, the first thoughts in your mind as you wake up in the morning, the different meetings that are on your calendar for the day, the tasks on your to-do list, the conversations that you'll have, the ways that you're going to react to the people and the events of your day, what would it look like for every bit of it to be saturated in the identity of Jesus? Let me paint a picture. You wake up in the morning, you get dressed, eventually you drag yourself out to your kitchen for breakfast. And now, I don't know if you're the kind of person who wakes up with birds chirping and a skip in your step, or if you're the kind of person who shuffles your feet and just wishes there was a no-talking rule until 8 a.m. in the morning, But whichever one you are, let's say that one of your family members enters the kitchen and they're the opposite. And it is so irritating. What does it look like for you to live out verse 17 in that situation? Well, as you sit and wonder what alien planet they came from, you remember that there's not just two people in the room. Christ is there with you, mediating. So what would it look like for you to approach them as Christ? How could your words and actions bubble up out of the character of Christ in you? What would it look like for your life to be so hidden with Christ in God that every action and every interaction is done in the name and in the way of Jesus? Now, we all know we can't live two different lives. We don't have one day of the week that's spiritual and six days a week that are secular, right? Right? Maybe sometimes we have this tendency to think that we can live with a little dose of Christianity as if it were the cherry on top of our ordinary, regular lives. But Paul says that to live that way is to reject our identity as followers of Jesus. It's not a part-time gig. It's a whole new way of life. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either Jesus is your Lord, the authority that you yield to, the pattern that you live by, the identity that you wear or he isn't. When we're living according to these first two characteristics, when we're allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, when we're allowing the word of Christ to inhabit our lives, having our identity identity saturated in Christ happens more easily and naturally. As we do everything in the name of Christ, Saturated in our identity as followers of Jesus, loving those around us with the love that Christ has shown to us, we experience the blessings of this together life that God's called us to. I'm going to share one more quote from Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Think about what this looks like in the context of church as we do life together. If each of us is living with intentionality, each thought and word and action done in the name and the love of Jesus, what would our relationships look like with one another? Think of the kindness and the courtesy we would show to one another. Think of the encouragement and the support that we would extend to one another. As Romans 12 says, we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor And then how would we love and serve our community differently? We might begin to see every person through the eyes and heart of Christ. We would put their own needs ahead of our own. We would give freely of our time and of our gifts and our resources to share and to serve them. We would share our own lives and the gospel of God more regularly and liberally. And wouldn't this be the kind of place then that everybody wants to be part of? Friends, this is what it means to, do, to be church to one another, to passionately follow Jesus together. I'll close with a story shared by another author that I enjoy. She tells a story that her minister uh, says when she was about seven, the minister's best friend got lost one day. And the little girl ran up and down the streets of their big town where they lived, but she couldn't find a single landmark that she recognized. She began to be terrified Well, finally, a policeman stopped to help her. He put her in the passenger seat of his car, and they drove the streets of that town until she finally saw her church. And she pointed it out to the policeman, and she said very firmly, you can let me out now. This is my church, and I can always find my way home from here. And then the author says, and that is why I've stayed so close to my church, because no matter how bad I'm feeling, No matter how lost or lonely or frightened, when I see the faces of the people at my church and I hear their tawny voices, I can always find my way home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you have not designed us to do life with you on our own. And what a beautiful even if imperfect gift you have given us in the church. Lord, forgive us for those times when we have not loved one another in the ways that you have loved us. Lord, would these characteristics that we've talked about today be true of us? Would you let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Would you let your word inhabit us and transform our lives together? And Lord, would our identity collectively as well as as individuals, be saturated by you. And Lord, may this be a witness to those around us of the way that you are at work in us, among us, and through us as we passionately follow Jesus together. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.